Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Suresh Kanagaraja about second language writing, transnationalism, translingualism, and using literacy autobiographies in the writing classroom. Suresh is an absolutely wonderful person to talk to, incredibly intelligent, and I'm thankful that he decided to be on the podcast. Suresh Kanagaraja is the Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of English, Applied Linguistics, and Asian Studies at Pennsylvania State University. He teaches courses in rhetoric and composition for the English department and in sociolinguistics for the applied linguistics department. Suresh comes from the Tamil-speaking northern region of Sri Lanka. He taught earlier in the University of Jaffna, Sri Lanka. His recent book, Transnational Literacy Autobiographies as Translingual Writing, combines the narrative writing of students in his courses and his own narrative on developing his teaching and writing through these classroom interactions. Suresh also serves in the Pennsylvania Governor's State Law Enforcement Advisory Commission. Suresh, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by drawing on your expertise and knowledge in second language writing scholarship. So what are some current issues being addressed in second language writing scholarship, or what kinds of conversations are ongoing about teaching second language writers? So, you know, I think uh, all of us in second language writing uh, initially started with the assumption that uh, second language writers are new to English, and therefore uh, we have to focus a lot on uh, grammar and, uh, you know, uh, language norms. Uh, so actually, there are some scholars, they are good friends, uh, Vaidhi Ramnathan and Dwight Atkinson. They wrote a paper in the early 90s, uh, and they call it the different cultures of writing studies. They said in L1, the, the teachers focus on voice and uh, critical thinking and uh, identity and all those nice things. But in L2, uh, they were looking at two departments in the same university. Uh, and they said in the department that teaches L2 writing, they focus only on grammar. They don't talk about voice and critical thinking because they think students uh, still need to uh, learn the grammar before they can engage with that. So I think a lot of changes now uh, relate to going beyond just grammar because um, we feel sort of one of the first shifts that I wanted to mention to you is treating writing as rhetorical, even second-hand writing as rhetorical. And uh, one of my good friends, uh, Jay Jordan, uh, he has been writing a lot about that recently, that why don't we teach or, or relate to second-hand writing as just rhetoric, you know, than just making a... Uh, grammatically perfect text. <laughs> so, um, so that's one of the major shifts and with um, treating second language writing as rhetorical, we also come into issues of the voice of a multilingual writer, identity, and even creativity. Uh, I guess we were earlier very norm-driven, you know, we were very concerned about getting the writers to uh, learn the uh, academic norms and grammatical norms. But writing as rhetorical and second language writing as rhetorical, they're kind of thinking more about where can students appropriate the grammar uh, or use English uh, for their own uh, voices and identities in more creative ways. So that's one shift. Uh, second shift, which is also moving away from language and grammar, is multimodality. So we are saying writing involves a lot of other resources, you know, um, even in uh, academic writing, 
Um, we haven't really been sensitive to things like space, paragraph divisions, font, you know, writing as a practice involves uh, technology, uh, word processing systems, computers, uh, but even more broadly, uh, academic writing uh, draws from conversations people have, students have, uh, social media posts they have. So if I use multimodality in a broad sense to include all these um, practices, uh, communicative practices that lead to the final text, a lot of us are now uh, working on uh, how all these uh, other multimodal resources help writing. So that's the second shift. And a third shift deriving from all of that is, let's call it translingualism. <laughs> that is, how do students go beyond the grammar of one language in their writing? So uh, this gets people scared because they would say, well, uh, English writing is English writing. You'll get punished if you bring a little bit of Chinese or a little bit of Arabic into your writing. That's true. Uh, but to begin with, in the process of writing, you know, as people construct the text, we don't know what's going through their mind. <laughs> they, be, they might be multitasking in multiple languages as they create the text. Uh, they might be writing a draft in um, a first draft in Arabic uh, just to get their ideas going. Uh, they might write a outline in Arabic and then the final draft. So I think there's nothing to worry about. Uh, in the sense, students are not going to suffer if we allow all the other languages to be part of the writing process. My uh, funny way of putting it to a lot of my students is to say, uh, translanguaging might actually help your students write a more perfectly grammatical English essay. <laughs> it's a paradox, but I think it's true in the sense that if somebody is just shuttling between different languages, uh, they also develop a keener awareness of English grammar in the sense that they, they ask, like for me, you know, I'm a second language speaker. I um, use Tamil all the time. I'm always thinking to myself, why do we say this in English this way when we say it, it, that in Tamil in that way? So I'm, I tell my students, I'm, I'm always learning because I'm a multilingual. I'm always asking questions about languages and hopefully it's leading to a better appreciation of both grammars. Uh, so, um, uh, so I think uh, there's a fear from teachers that allowing multiple languages into the writing classroom or writing might affect the proficiency of uh, English writing for students. I actually like to put it in a very paradoxical way and say it can actually improve the proficiency because moving between languages can uh, create a better language awareness, um, uh, metalinguistic awareness, you know, to rise above both grammars. Your latest book, Transnational Literacy Autobiographies as Translingual Writing, brings together transnationalism and translingualism. How do you see the connections between both four writing studies? Formerly, when we focused a lot on English grammar, we thought of English as belonging to one country or one community, you know, the native speakers of a country, US, UK. And then we also thought that students who uh, come to our universities want to acculturate to American norms. And therefore we felt uh, it was justified to teach uh, American English uh, and, you know, the English norms. But a couple of things have happened because of globalization and migration and things like that. 
One is a lot of people feel English is now a transnational language in the say, you know, uh, to use something in cultural studies, it's deterritorialized. It doesn't have one territory. You know, earlier we thought, you know, English belongs to the territory of native speaker countries like UK, U USA. Uh, so uh, people are taking over English, you know, students who come from India, Nigeria, the Caribbean islands, they come with their own English. Uh, and, you know, we sometimes mistakenly think they don't know the language, but, you know, they, they have had a history of more than 200 years of using English. So English is becoming transnational. And then uh, a lot of people are, students are also more comfortable with transnational identities. That is, uh, they feel uh, even when we uh, come for studies or uh, work in the United States, that doesn't mean we lose our national identities. We, we would enjoy identities that belong to multiple communities. On top of that, even American students, Anglo-American students can't be thought of as American anymore. They are also transnational. So in my classes and in that book, uh, I have had uh, the writing of a couple of Anglo-American students who went on study abroad to other countries or had a short-term teaching uh, stint as English teachers in South Korea, France, and places like that. So what I find is a lot of students in our classes are now positioning themselves as transnational. I call positioning themselves because they might have a legal uh, nationality somewhere, uh, but that doesn't affect the, the identity positioning you might have. That is, some people would like to think of themselves and identify themselves as not belonging to one language group or one uh, country. So um, I'm becoming more sensitive to uh, transnational identities. And then the question then is, so what implication would they have for writing? You know, would people write differently if they think of themselves as transnational? So here I borrow from an earlier book by a Berkeley professor in German. Uh, she's Claire Kramsch. Uh, it's an Oxford University Press publication in 2009 uh, titled simply The Multilingual Subject. Uh, she did use the word translingual, but, she, but what she says there is very similar to translingual. What she said is uh, she had asked her uh, students in her classes in Berkeley undergraduates to write their narratives. Uh, and uh, uh, just a short one-page narrative about becoming bilingual or coming to the United States to learn in U.S. universities. And what she said is, even without telling it to them, she, she, they developed a multilingual text. That is, they would use, start in English, but you, they would throw in uh, something from their own languages or other varieties of English. And so she eventually theorized this as, for people who don't have a very rigid sense of home, they are trying to find new textual homes. The essay becomes a place to resolve their identity conflicts and language conflicts. So, so she said this, these narratives, these personal narratives, uh, help them uh, develop an identity that puts together their transnational identities, you know, where do I belong? It is a kind of an ongoing question for everybody and uh, they find a tentative resolution <laughs> in the text. So I thought, hey, that's a great idea. 
uh, and, uh, and I was also finding them in my essays, in transnational, uh, in um, uh, autobiographies, in my classes. But but I then said is I uh, use the term translingual because uh, what I find is by using the term translingual, what I then mean is people are going beyond the labels of languages. So trans as in rising above uh, labels of languages or monolithic understandings of language. That is, English means there is no place in it for uh, other languages, Arabic, Chinese, etc. Uh, one of the funny things I tell my students is, do you guys know that English already has hundreds of languages that it has appropriated? It's one of the most mixed languages that you can find. I actually call English a Creole language. It's, it's, it's like a Creole. It's mixed with so many languages. English is a translingual language. What I found uh, in my classes was students, first of all, international students who are clearly translingual, but also Anglo-American students in some of my classes where the students were mixed, who, because uh, of their experiences in globalization, migration, etc., who could also gradually think of themselves as transnational. This, uh, their writing becomes kind of performative in the sense in this essay, they are try writing about how they are navigating multiple identities, multiple languages. And then they actually, in this essay, perform that identity. And uh, so I, what I want to show us, um, translingual and creative writing is not always uh, for to to sound cool or to you know to show off, <laughs> but uh, it's driven by certain serious psychological, cultural, and social conflicts people might experience, and um, seeking ways to resolve it. Your pedagogy features the writing of literacy autobiographies. What value do you see in this genre for multilingual students? So, uh, so this comes from the Vygotskyan idea that. Um, engaging with uh, inactivity by using certain tools uh, helps you develop your identity, internalize uh, your learning. So learning always is in the context of activity and tools. So they think of writing a narrative as a tool, as an activity that mediates uh, your development or identity, learning of language. So, uh, so it's pretty widespread. You know, it's not just uh, writing teachers who seem to be using it. So some of my colleagues uh, who are not well, nothing to do with writing, they actually get their future teachers to write their narrative. Um, so, so what I did was following, you know, some from their practice to some degree. I uh, so the courses uh, I've been teaching lately, which is uh, it's titled "Teaching Second Language Writing," and uh, it's for training future teachers for becoming teachers of writing. And uh, so it has a mix of, uh, fortunately, undergraduates and early graduate students. So, so what I did was I told them, uh, we are going to do a lot of readings. You know, I use a lot of scholars from second language writing, like Dana Ferris. Uh, she has a wonderful handbook for composition and, you know, uh, for teaching composition. So I used that. Christine Fasanabe, she's a second language uh, scholar also. So on top of that, I said, uh, you will also write your own literacy autobiography throughout the course for 15 weeks, starting from a very basic outline. And we will negotiate that. That is, uh, as you, you know, as you post your drafts, we will talk about it as a class, uh, see how to improve it. Uh, so, so it's a kind of, um, a lot of different things are happening. One is they are engaging with their reading from the point of view of their own identities and their own backgrounds. 
secondly, because it's kind of developed through the whole semester, they're also practicing what they should be teaching, <laughs> which is draw serial drafts and outlines, getting feedback, uh, including my feedback. So uh, I found that they, I'm sure you could do it with any genre, all these things, you know, even with an expository writing. But with the literacy autobiography, what I thought, saw was that it, uh, it's personal. It gives you a space to think about your own learning and your own background, uh, all the languages that you speak, all the learning that you did. Um, you know, I used to tell my students, uh, you, you're also assessing your own learning of writing. And because when you're future teachers, you can learn what didn't work and what did work. So it's, it's an important lesson for you also to kind of think critically about your own learning of writing. If you are to put it in one word, it's a very performative genre. Suresh, how do you respond to critics who would argue that this creative genre, literacy autobiographies, has little relevance for the high-stakes writing in academic context or the kinds of writing that people expect to see across the university? Yeah, I know that's a great question. We are, every time I try to publish on these things, <laughs> that's, what, that's what reviewers ask. You know, so uh, how is this going to prepare, you know, other, uh, you know, students in good writing, uh, you know, teachers are good writing. So, uh, so what I would say is, um, first of all, I think this uh, partly goes into the question of transferability uh, in writing. I know that's a hot topic. I, my position is that nothing is transferable as a product or as a genre. You know, for, for example, if in my classroom, if I teach them research writing, you know, we all do, that's not the same research writing you will do in your course in biology or physics or economics. Uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a pedagogical genre in the sense we teach certain important things, but that genre in itself cannot be transported to another class. I would say even from one class to the another or one instructor to the another, the genre conventions might vary in the sense of research article I teach in my English 15 basic uh, writing course uh, will slightly be different from what another professor teaches. Uh, you know, for example, they might, I might have more space for voice, even in a research article, and somebody else for pedagogical reasons might say, no, you have to be cash, uh, cautious, you know, don't, don't uh, just stick to the, you know, safe routines. So, uh, so one issue is that, um, uh, if the concern is about how can we transport this genre to other academic contexts, I would say, no, we can't, you know, that's, and that's not the uh, idea. So what I like to see through uh, the writing of this genre, uh, I call them uh, language awareness. How does language work in writing? Secondly, I call them sociolinguistic strategies, or sometimes I call it negotiation strategies. That is, how do I negotiate the norms in order to bring a little bit of myself into these norms. So how do I negotiate with audiences who come with different norms uh, to uh, write uh, creatively and the way I like? So second is negotiation strategies. And third, I call rhetorical sensitivity, or sometimes I've used it rhetorical sensibility. Writing in multiple places, you know, <laughs> I forget my words, I guess. So, but uh, in essence, those are the three things language awareness, negotiation strategies, and rhetorical sensitivity. So, by rhetorical sensitivity, I, I say you're not going to um, practice the same rhetorical features or modes 
in every writing. But you develop a kind of an eye for uh, what works in different contexts or what's permissible in different contexts. Uh, also issues like what's effective, what's not, uh, what is uh, appreciated, what is not appreciated, what is understood, what is not understood. So I like students to take a step back from the text to look at all these uh, subjective uh, dimensions. Uh, in, uh, collectively, I call them dispositions, all three of them, <laughs> in the sense. So rather than the text and norms and rules, I focus on developing the dispositions that will help them for future writing. What I say is, because genres cannot be transported uh, and you're going to face new conditions, new genres all the time, you know, every class you go to, it'll be, a, these dispositions will help you deal with the new context. Whereas if I made you dependent on one set of norms or one set of rhetorical features, uh, you're going to be tied to that and it's not going to help you. So at a broader level, I also think both, you know, issues like globalization, migration, uh, digital technology, social media, they all involve a lot of contexts of unpredictability. But I, so the, I tell my students, uh, so rather than teaching you one genre at a time or one text at a time or one norm, language norm at a time, uh, let me focus on the dispositions that you can then apply uh, to other contexts. What are some resources that you would recommend teachers consider when teaching second language writers? And why would you suggest those resources or what advantages and affordances do they provide teachers and students? Let me start with explanation <laughs> because I guess the, uh, the resources and affordances won't make sense without some justification. So I, I think uh, I'm coming from um, my background in sociolinguistics and uh, migration studies and things like that, I feel that teaching has become more challenging for us uh, because we are always confronted by new situations, new genres, new interlocutors and audiences. Uh, our texts travel uh, to so many places. So uh, teaching in a product-oriented way, you know, that's a very familiar term for all of us, and also teacher-fronted way, that is me taking the authority, tell, tell the students, these are the norms you need to learn, or this is the genre convention. And if you just learn the genre convention, you're going to be fine. Uh, it's not going to help because students are always going to be confronted with new situations. So what I like to do in my classes is treat the classroom as a contact zone, uh, like you know, Mary Louise Pratt used it in 1991. A, a class is a, a safe space. Multiple cultures, multiple, multiple languages can collide. And a lot of times embodied by the students we have. Make all that diversity shine through in my class. Uh, so, you know, this guy was kind of smiling to myself because a lot of people sometimes say, how do you introduce diversity in your writing? So I said, I just make it, I just provide a space for it so that, you know, it, it, uh, it comes out and I, I, I invite it, you know, rather than just uh, teach it. So, uh, so I create a classroom where, uh, as a context zone, where multiple languages and cultures can thrive. Um, uh, or another term that I've used in some places uh, is as the learning environment as ecological. Uh, ecological meaning um, all the resources uh, in the setting, in the classroom setting, uh, would uh, become functional and influential, influential and generative because um, every classroom has a lot of other 
resources, you know, um, the way uh, benches are, uh, are arranged, the other texts in the classroom that we are dealing with. So sometimes we have to carefully choose uh, the text. So, and, you know, um, to go back to an example I gave you, um, I don't give uh, texts that are only translingual. So sometimes I use my readings, but I also pair it with um, uh, other second-hand writers who would make a case for norms in writing. Because I want students to kind of work between these uh, positions to see how would you uh, formulate your own text in the context of these positions. So, so the ecological would be to let all the affordances thrive, different kinds of texts, uh, different kind of uh, technologies. Uh, basically, um, if, uh, if this also means that students are free to choose their affordances and resources. So I found uh, some students do their own reference reading uh, for, the, for the literacy biography and then use it as a sounding off board for their own literacy biography. So, but I found, yeah, that's interesting because they're not sticking to my uh, reading uh, list and, you know, prescribed the textbooks and such. Uh, they're actually seeking out uh, their own text. And, um, and then another student who reads that, they'll find, oh, maybe I should read that too. So broadly speaking, I, I like to create, treat classrooms as a contact zone of uh, diverse, influences, diverse cultures, diverse languages, and then uh, treat all of them as ecological in the sense that they can all generate good learning and good texts. But here's where the negotiation comes in, the negotiation strategy. It all depends eventually on how students and I are going to negotiate all these uh, for good outcomes, you know, productive outcomes. And, uh, and all, they are negotiated differently. Like one student could negotiate them to write a fairly safe and um, normative kind of essay. Uh, but I, I tell myself, you know, that's their investment in writing. This is where they want to go. And I need to, um, I, I can't complain about that. I, so I, I can't come with a predefined notion of good writing or whatever. All that I can expect is, um, how does this suit your uh, intentions and expectations for your writing and how well does it suit uh, your expectations for writing and a classroom with these multiple affordances and resources can help that kind of students a student as much as a very creative and uh, international uh, student who might want to do something different so in short uh, you know that's a that's the way i think about resources and affordances in my teaching Thanks, Suresh, and thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.